0: Chapter 5 of The Castle of Twilight. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Maria Abrenica. The Castle of Twilight by Margaret Horton Potter. Chapter 5. On the day after Lor's flight, Madame Eleanor left the great table. And Went to her bedroom early in the afternoon. Once again, as a year ago, she was alone there, hovering over her pride. Only this day was not sunny, but cold and damp and very gray. Eleanor was in her usual mood of lonely melancholy, but when Alex stopped at the door, she was admitted, and Madame ceased her devotions and bade the girl come in and sit down to her embroidery frame beside a window. Latterly, it had become a habit of Alex to break in upon her foster mother's elected solitude, and to draw her willy-nilly out of her sadness. If Madame perceived the kindly intention in these interruptions, she did not comment upon it, but accepted the maid's devotion with growing affection. When Alex entered, Madame also seated herself near the window, yet did not take up any work. Leaving the tambour frame and spinning wheel both idle in their places. She regarded Alex for a few moments in silence, wondering why the young girl did not speak. Finally, putting her dullness down to the fact that it was but yesterday morning, they had bidden Flammack and his squire godspeed of their journey to Normandy. Their long sojourn at Crepescu had brought a gaiety to the castle that made it doubly dull now that they were gone madame pondered for some time of the subject and presently spoke of it Sir Bertrand hath a dreary sky for his journey but a promise of beauty in the land to which he got responded alex with something of an effort mayhap i have not been in normandy and here the conversation ended they sat together these two women listening to the incessant beating of the heavy waves of the cliff far below and to the top top of the rain upon the windows but neither found it in her heart to speak again alex was shading her bird from blue into green and eleanor sat with folded hands her eyes looking far away musing upon the nothingness of her life suddenly there came a claymore at the door somewhat startled eleanor called admittance and immediately david the dwarf walked into the room stepped to the right of the doorway, and ushered in his companion, announcing her gravely, Sir Celeste from the Couvent des Madeleines." The sub-prioress, her white cloak and veil-dump, and stringing with rain, came slowly into the room and courtesied first to Eleanor, then to Alex. Madame rose hastily, in some surprise, and went forward. Give you God's greeting, good sister, she said. The nun returned the salutation and then, with some hesitation, indicated the little dwarf in a gesture that showed her desire that he should leave the room. Madame accordingly motioned him away and, when he was gone, turned to the nun with a hint of anxiety on her face. The newcomer did not hesitate in her mission. Leaning over, she asked eagerly, Madame, is Angelique here with you? Eleanor looked at her blankly. Laura? lor is with you. Lor is what says the woman? Sir Celeste resignedly bent her head. For some seconds nothing was said. Alex, her face grown ashen, her body changed to eyes, rose and moved to the side of Madame. Then she asked softly, What had happened, good sister? Angeline, Laura, the demoiselle is not in the convent we have searched for her everywhere her veil and wimple were found in her cell upon the bed beyond this there is no trace of her this morning she came not to the church for prime, and we thought she had overslept she had so much fastened and prayed of late that reverend mother granted indulgence and bade us let her rest at breaking of the fast, Sir eloise was dispatched to her cell and returned with word that she was not there since the hour even the daily services have been suspended while we sought for her in the garden we found footprints those of a woman and of a man perhaps they were hers yet it is a lie that is a lie burst from eleanor's white lips woman woman and say thy words no man hath ever seen her my lord said it not madame eleanor i but said mayhap ventured the gentle sister timidly but eleanor did not hear her white rigid her every muscle drawn tense she stood there staring before her into space while alex feeling this scene to be too intimate even for her presence glided slowly from the room immediately outside the closed door stood david the dwarf moving restlessly from one spot to another, biting his thick lips and working his heavy black brows with great nervousness. Seeing Alex, he says upon her at once, I know what it is. Lore hath gone away. hath she not? Alex simply nodded. Yeah, I know it. With that scoundrelly Truvere, Alex quivered as if she had been touched upon the roe but david paid no attention to her movement of fame come he jerked out nervously come away from this room come below i will tell thee what i saw in the fallow the two of them walked silently across the broad upper hall and down the great staircase into the lower room which was always deserted at this hour here alex and the dwarf seated themselves on tablets at one of the long tables and David began to talk. It seemed that he had watched Flammek closely and had seen a good deal of his attentions to Lore, knew how he rode with her to and from the Priory, guessed Lore's all too apparent feeling for him, and was aware that most of the hours in which the troubadour had supposedly hunted, hawk or gun to St. Nazaire had really been spent in the neighborhood of the Priory though how much he had seen of the dan david could not know alex listened to him without much comment and agreed in her heart with all that he said but she was at a loss to comprehend her own bitterness of spirit of thought of what Flamick had done she loved Lord truly yet these sensations of hers were not for lore but for herself alone and this girl so acute at reading the minds of others Failed entirely to read her own. For now she not soundly hated Flemeth. Had she hated him? It was a heavy hour that these two, dwarf and peasant-born, spent waiting for their lady to give some sign. At length, however, there were footsteps on the stairs, and both of them rose, as Eleanor, followed, not accompanied by the white-robed nun, descended. Madame was very erect, very brilliant-eyed, very white and stiff, but she had perfect control over herself. As she swept toward the great door, David could plainly see her state and Alex Ridwell her heart. Yet neither of them could but admire her splendid self-possession. Out of the castle and into the courtyard she went, the three others following her, on her way to the kip. In the open doorway of the rough stone tower, she halted, and the dozen lolling henchmen within instantly started to their feet. My men, she said, in a voice as steady and as commanding as that of a lord of Crepescal, My men, a great blow has fallen upon me, and a disgrace to all that dwell in this castle. Lord, my daughter, your Demoiselle, the lady of all our hearts, hath been stolen from the place of her consecration. She hath been abducted from the priory of the holy madeline by one that had broken our bread and received our hospitality bertrand phalamet the troubadour brought dishonor upon Le Crepesco, and i ask you all to avenge your lord and me here she was interrupted by a chorus began in low murmurs of astonishment and now rising to a roar of wrath after a moment she raised her hand and in the silence that quickly ensued began again In the name of your Lord, I bid you avenge us. Ride forth every man of you into the countryside, in pursuit of the flying hound. Go every man by a different road, nor halt by day or night, till you bring me tidings of my child, and to him that shall find and bring her back to me, will I give honor and riches and great love, such as I would give to none that was not of noble blood. Go, nor stay to talk of it go forth in the name of god and bring me back my child the man needed no further urging to action as she ceased to speak they sprang from their places and began preparations for departure with a spirit that showed their devotion to madame and to Laura. madame stayed in the courtyard till sir celeste and the last hedgeman had ridden away and then when there was no more to see she turned to alex and leaning heavily upon the young girl's shoulder "'slowly mounted to her darkening chamber "'and lay down upon her tape bed. "'Alex moved gently about the room, "'bringing her lady such physical comforts as she could. "'Though these were not many, "'neither of them spoke and neither wept. "'Eleanor lay motionless, staring out into the dusk. "'Alex's eyes closed every now and then "'with a kind of deadly awareness that was not physical.' but she did not leave madame after a long time when it had grown quite dark alex asked suddenly would have a message sent to rents madame to gerald no it is too late what could he do nay i will not have the shame of his house published abroad in the duke's capital speak of it no more and obediently alex was silent it was now long past the early supper hour but neither of the women went downstairs. The thought of food did not occur to Eleanor. Alex sat by the closed window, brooding deeply. Darkness had come over the sea, and with it clouds dispersed so that a few stars glimmered forth, and at times a moon showed through the rag mist. Downstairs the young men and maidens had resorted to their usual evening amusements of games, but they played without spirit. And finally, one by one, heavy with unvoiced foreboding. Craft off to rest. David and Dwarf had not been among them at all tonight. Ever since the ending of supper, he had sat outside the door of Madame's room, waiting patiently for some sound to come from within. Everything, however, was silent. From her bed, the mother, tearless bright-eyed, watched the broken moonlight creep along the floor. Past the figure of Alex, her mind was filled with terrible things, pictures of lore, and of what the young girl was doubtless enduring. For a long time she contained herself under these thoughts, but finally, racked with unbearable misery, she started up, crying aloud, Alex, Alex, methinks I shall go mad. As she spoke, Madame rose from the bed, stumbled across the floor, flang open one of the windows and looked out upon the splendor of the tumbling moonlight sea after a moment or two she felt upon her arm a gentle touch and she knew that alex was beside her mad do we die thoughts madame indeed missy mitlor will not die doubtless the sir Tauver loved her she was interrupted by a long groan madame she whispered in soft deprecation not die, Alex, not die, die It were now my one prayer for her that she might quickly die. Nay, what is there so terrible for her, save that she hath brought upon herself damnation and she die unrepentant? Would thou not have her live to repent and be shriven? Eleanor groaned again, though art too young to understand, Alex ah. Uh, her purity, her innocence, how she will suffer. There is no suffering like unto it. Madame slipped to her knees there by the window and, putting her arms upon the sill, buried her hand in them and drew two or three terrible breaths. Alex, helpless, fighting to keep down her own secret woe in the face of his more bitter grief, felt herself useless. She remained perfectly still, looking out at the sea but nothing of its beauty, till all at once madame began to speak again in a muffled voice. I remember well my wedding with the sword de school. I was of the age and of the innocence of lore. Never was mortal so happy as I, upon the day of the ceremony, at level. I loved my lord, and he had given all his honor into my keeping. But had the bitterness of guilt been on me when I was brought home to Le Crepesco, alone and stranger in his house, I know not if I could have lived through the shame and bitterness of my first days. Though cannot know, Alex, but the humiliation of that time is afresh in my memory as twere but yesterday. Ah, oh, leave me now, maiden, leave me alone. Thou been good and faithful to me, but a mother's grief she must bear alone. Go to bed, child, and in the name of pity, pray for thy sister. So she sent Alex from the room and made the door fast after her. After this, she did not return to her place at the window, but began slowly to make ready for the night. When at length she was prepared, she wrapped herself closely in a warm woolen mantle and went to her perdu. Lore from the priory had ceased to accost heaven. Therefore, Madame took her daughter's place, and thence through the night ascended, an unceasing bitter commanding prayer that Lord should be restored to her mother's house, or else be mercifully received into the more accessible hereafter. When morning dawned, her great bed had not been slept in, but throughout the day Eleanor sought no rest. She spent the hours passing from the hall to the keep and thence to the tower at the drawbridge, waiting, hoping, praying for tidings. During the afternoon three or four henchmen rode in, exhausted, but none of them had found any trace of lore. One, however, who had taken the St. Nazaire road, and had reached the town during the night, had learned of Lamech, and his page had been there on the afternoon of the day they left Crepesco. And upon further search, this man found a shop where the Trevere had bought a lady's mantle, and hood both black. This was all the news that could be got, but it was enough to prove, without the least doubt, Flamek's guilt. Late in the afternoon, Alex went to work among the falcons, changing some of them from their winter house to the often falcon tree in the field. Madame, seeing her at work, went out and watched her for a time. Alex answered her few remarks with respect, but would not talk herself. The girl was dark brown today and very silent, Madame perceiving that something troubled her, shortly left her to herself and began to pace the damp turf. Hither presently came David with the news that Monseigneur de Saint-Nazaire had come. With a cry of sudden relief, Madame hurried back to the castle, where the bishop awaited her. He was gowned as usual in his violet, with round black cap, and gauntlet cut to show his ring and as she came into the great hall, he advanced to her with both hands outstretched and a look of trouble in his clear eyes. Eleanor, for the first time in many years, I come to you in sorrow, to bring to you what comfort the church can give, he said gently, fixing his eyes upon her to read how she had taken her blow, and from it decide what his attitude toward her should be. For St. Nazaire had a great and affectionate respect for Eleanor, and he was accustomed to treat her with the consideration that he used toward no other woman. It was for this that he had come to her in her grief, at the first moment that he heard the news of Laura's flight. Come, though, into this room, where we can be alone, she said quickly, leading him into the round armory and opened off the great hall immediately opposite the chapel. Half-closing the heavy door, she sat down on a wooden settle, motioning the bishop to a tabret near at hand. Is there any news of her? What hast thou heard? she asked eagerly, bending toward him. I come but now from the Priory, where I chanced to go to-day. This morning the girl Lois, a lay-sister, she that was accustomed to ride hither from the Priory with lore, confessed to many rites and love passages between herself, and evaned the young squire while Bertrand Flammec followed Lore. Madame drew a sharp breath, and the bishop continued. The girl is now under heavy penance. Yet is she a silly thing, and in my heart I found no great blame for her. Then there hath been no word, no news of Lore? Left she no token in her cell? Nothing, Eleanor, nothing. Oh, Saint Nazaire, Saint Nazaire. How did we that cruel thing? How took we away from a young girl all her freedom, all her youth, all her love of life? Know I not enough for the woe of loneliness, that I should have sent her forth into the living death? Alas, alas, I am all to blame. Not only though, madame, perhaps the church also, said the bishop softly. Eleanor looked at him in something of amazement. It was the first time that he had ever suggested any criticism of the church. But after these words had escaped him, the bishop paused for a little and fixed upon Eleanor a look that she read aright. It told her many things that she had guessed before, many and other things that had drawn her closely to St. Nazaire, but it told her also that these things must never be discussed between them, that never again would the man be guilty of so heretical an utterance as that which he had just voiced. After this, he began to speak again, still in the same tone of sympathy, but with a subtle difference in the general tenor of his views, he told her in a manner eloquent with simplicity. Of his talk with Laura on the eve of her consecration, he reminded Eleanor that Laura had entered of her own free will upon the life of a nun. He recalled the girl's contentment throughout the period of her novitiate, And finally, seeing that he had succeeded in obliterating some of the self-reproach in this woman to whom he was so sincerely attached, he began to prepare her for the blow that he was about to deal, to tell her what words could not soften, to inflict a wound that time could not heal, but which, according to the law of the Roman Catholic Church, he was bound to administer. Eleanor listened to his plausibly logical praises with close attention, She sat there before him, elbow on knee, her head resting on her hand, her eyes wandering over the armor-strewn walls. The bishop talked around his subject, circling ever a little nearer to its climax, but he was still far from the end when Madame suddenly straightening up and looking full into his eyes interrupted him to ask boldly, Monseigneur, hast thou never in thy heart known the yearning for a woman's love? Many a time and oft, Madame, I have felt love, a deeply reverent love for a woman, and I have rejoiced therein, and given thanks to God, was the careful reply. But Eleanor had begun her attack, and she would not be repulsed in the first onslaught, and has no woman, Reverend Father, know thy love? she demanded. Madame, a pale flush overspread Saint Nazaire's face, that question is not kind he said haltingly but without rebuke nay i'm not kind now make me answer saint azar looked at her thoughtfully and weighed certain things in a certain balances because of many years of the confessional and also of free confidence he knew eleanor thoroughly knew how she had suffered every soul torment knew her unswerving virtue sympathized with her intense loneliness he prized her trust in him more than she was aware, and he feared to jeopardize that confidence now by whatever answer he should make. Ignorant of the purport of her questions, he yet saw that she was in a terrible earnest in them. So finally, he did the honest and straightforward thing. Answering her look eye for eye, he said slowly, Yeah, Eleanor, of Le Crepesco, a woman hath known my love. What then? Then, if thou, a good man and as strong as any of the church ever knew, found that human nature a loveliness life is an impossibility, how should thou blame a maid, high strung, full of youth, vitality, emotions that she has not tried, for yielding to the same temptation before which thou didst fall? How is it right that the church, that God, should demand so much, should ask more than his creatures can give? Elinor, Elinor, thou shalt not question God. I do not question Him. It is, it is, untried in this exercise. She groped for words. It is what ye say He said. It is what ye declare His will to be that I question. What, Elinor, have I declared His will to be? Have I yet blamed or chided the waywardness of Laura, whom indeed I love as a dear daughter? a child of purity and faith. Then, then, Eleanor bent over eagerly and her voice shook. Then, and thou blamest her not. Saint Nazaire, thou will not. She clasped her hands in an agony of pleading. Thou will not put upon her the terrible ban? Thou will not excommunicate her? It was only then that the bishop realized how skillfully she had led up to her point. He had not realized that he was dealing with perception, engendered by an agony of grief and fear. As she reached her climax, he sprang to his feet and began to pace the room, hands clasped behind him, brows much contracted, head far bent upon his breast. Eleanor, meantime, had slid to her knees and watched him as he moved. If the will spare her as what thou wilt of me, I will do her penance, whatever thou shalt decree. I will give money, I will give all the remains to me of my dower, freely and with light heart, to the church. I will aid whomsoever thou wilt of thy poor eye. Sis Eleanor These things cannot avail against the church. Thou must not tempt, thou must not question. Thou cannot understand the law. I am but an instrument of that law, and I am commanded by it. Lord, the bride of heaven, hath forsaken her chosen life. She must endure her punishment, being guilty of, though knowest the sin. Next Sunday, the ban must be put upon her. In doing so, I but obey a higher power. Eleanor, Eleanor, rise from thy knees, though art tearing at my heart, peace woman. Peace and let me go. Eleanor, in her agony of despair, had crept to him and collapsed his knees, mutely imploring the pity that he dared not show. Logic the reason he had put from him, holding fast to the tenets of the church that had made him what he was. In all his career he had not been so tried, to tempted, to slip his duty, but through the crucial moment he did not speak, and after that he was safe from attack. After many minutes, the mother loosed her claps of him, and ceased to moan and let him go, for she saw that he could not help her. And as he passed slowly out of the room, she rose to her feet and looked after him blindly. Then she groped her away to the door, crossed the great hall, and with her burden ascended the stairs and went to her own room. Next morning, when the bishop said Mass in the chapel, Madame, next morning, when the bishop said mass in the chapel. Madame, for the first time in thirty years on such an occasion, was not present. Nor did Monsignor seem astonished at the fact, but left his sympathy for her before he rode away to Saint-Nazaire. All that afternoon and night, indeed, till after dawn of the next day, weary henchmen of the keep came struggling in on spent horses, fruitless return from a fruitless quest, and when they were all back again, and the hope of seeing lore was gone, the shadow of loneliness settled a little lower over the great pile of stone, and the silence within the castle grew more and more intense to the aching heart within. In the general desolation of castle life, Alex, the unnatural child of peasant blood came very close to the heart of Eleanor. Through the long, budding spring, Madame fought a terrible battle with herself against an overpowering desire for end of life. For the feast of death and in these times alex often drew her away from herself by getting her to hunt and to hawk two amusements in which madame had been wont to indulge eagerly in her youth and which she found were still possible for her though she had grown to what she thought old womanhood besides this she and alex took the long walks that laura had formerly delighted in and the two ventured into many a deep cave in the sea cliffs and explored many crevices that no native of the coast would enter in these places they found fair treasures of the sea but were never accosted by any of the supernatural beings said to inhabit such spots nor though they listened many times for it at twilight did either of them hear a single time the long low wailing cries of the spirit of the lost Lenore. In this way some pleasures entered, unawares, into the life of Eleanor. Perhaps there were other pleasures also, so simple and so familiar, that she took no cognizance of them as such. Perhaps of a morning, in the spinning room, when her fingers flew under some familiar pretty task, and her ears were filled with the chatter of the demoiselles, who still strove after light-hearted joys amid their gray surroundings she found forgetfulness of lord's bitter disgrace or better still when at the sunset hour she paced the grassy falcon field watching the glories of the sea and sky there came to her heart that benison of nature that god has devised for all of us in our days of woe. but when she was alone in early afternoon or most of all through the silent night watches she was sometimes overcome with sheer terror of herself and of her solitude, at such times, she fought the creeping horror with what weapons times had given her, battling so bravely that she never suffered utter ruin. In a dim, quiet way, the weeks sped on, leaving behind them no trace of what had been nothing for memory to hang her lightest fabric on. In all the weeks that lay between Laura's flight and the coming of July, Eleanor could remember distinctly just one talk beside the bitter one with St. Nazaire, and this other was with neither Alex nor the bishop, who, however, made it a point to come once in a fortnight to Le Crepesqueur. On a fair morning in May, as the dawn crept out of the east not many hours after midnight, Eleanor rose in the early flash, and clothing herself lightly, left her room with the intention of going into the fields to walk. No one was to be seen as she entered the lower hall but to her amazement the great door stood half open and through it poured a draught of morning air rich with the perfume of blossoming trees and fertile fields wondering that alex should have risen so early Eleanor left the castle and hurried out of the courtyard into the strip of meadow lying between the wall and the dry moat here near the north edge of the cliff sitting cross-legged in the grass sat david the dwarf holding in his hand something to which he talked in a low solemn tone advancing noiselessly toward him Eleanor perceived that it was a dead butterfly that he had found and to which he was pouring out his soul amazed at the first phrases that caught her ears she halted a few steps behind him and there learned something of the thoughts that lay hidden in his volatile brain White butterfly, white butterfly, Thou frail, the delicate child of summer, Speak to me again. Say, hast thou found death as fair as life? though white and still? Came the messenger to thee unawares? Or did thou see his face and know it? Was thou confessed? White butterfly? When test thou ford absolve of all thy flattering scenes? Say, wanderer, didn't love thy love? Was afraid or sorrowful to live it in its dawn, or foundest thou comfort in the thought of eternal rest for thy battling wings, and I, o oh living down, teach me my way; shall I follow thee into the great world to roam there seeking why men love to live, or shall I also like thee live it all, shall I go, knowing nothing of the joy of life? Or again, shall I practice a weary courtesy that remained to bring echoes of laughter into the twilight castle? For the sake of the love, I buried its twilight lady. Her life, my flatterer, had been a such a dream of tears as even though an eye-dead thing have never known. Yea, many a time while I laughed and shouted at the light crew of damsels that sleep there now, my heart had bled for her, O ghost of the morning, know you what Eleanor, our lady, thinks of me, the fool? And yet, yet I do so deeply pity her. Thou pities me, David, echoed Eleanor, advancing till she stood before him forgetful of how her appearance must startle him, David looked up at her, winking slowly, like one that would bring himself out of the dream world into reality. Lady of twilight! though a woman lonely and mournful forsaken of thy children. Therefore I grieve for thee, he said slowly, gazing at her with his big eyes, but not rising from where he sat. A woman, said Eleanor, looking at him with a half-smile and echoing his tone, a woman doubtless is always to be pitied, and yet what man deems it so? Master David, ye are all born of women, and ye are all reared by them. Afterwards in youth, you would use us as your playthings for an hour, and then leave us in your gray dwellings, while we fare forth to more manly sports and exploits. There, in solitude, we bear and rear again, and later, our maidens, wed, and our sons depart from us, and for the last time in our age, we are left alone to die. Truly, David, though mayest will pity. David's wide mouth curved in a bitter smile. Even so madame eleanor and now for fifteen years i have lived as a woman lives mayhap by now i know her life better than other men if indeed i am a man being but little taller than the animals and all these things said i to my dead friend here in my hand tis now fifteen years since thou camest with my lord to Crepesco. Ay, fifteen i was then a boy of about such age fifteen years in lake crepescoe by the sea It is a lifetime." Madame sighed. Then her face brightened again as she looked down at the dwarf. What was the life of thy youth, David? Tis a tale I have never heard. Tis but a little tale, like my dead butterfly. I wondered. I come of a race of dwarfs all straight back know you, and not ill to look upon. My father was a mountebank. My mother who measured greater than was customary among us. Cooked and sewed, and traveled with us whithsoever we went in our wagon. When I was young at the age of five, or thereabouts, I began to assist my father in his entertainments. When I was fifteen, we were in Rennes for the jousting season, and there thy lord saw me, brought me, and brought me back to you, lady, to be your merry jester. But indeed my laughter hath run low of late. Long years I have bravely jested through, but now the twilight spell is creeping over me, and merriment rises no more in my heart. Indeed, I question if I should not beg leave of thee to go forth into the world again for a little time, to learn once more the song of joy. Yet, when thou art near, and I look out upon the sea, and behold the sun lifting his glory out of the eastern hills, I ever think I cannot go. I cannot leave this gentle home of melancholy. Though art free, David, if freedom is mine to bestow upon thee, indeed, I could not ask that any one remain in his sad and quiet place, of any than his own will. Go, thou forth into the world, go forth to joy and life and laughter. Fill thy little heart again with jest. Forget the brooding silence of Le Capisco and laughter the broad world to thy heart's content yet we shall meet thee sorely little man. madame stopped speaking and there was a pause david seemed to have no response to make to her words instead he bent over the earth digging a little hole in the sod into this he laid the dead form of his white butterfly when he had covered it from sight with a black earth and patted a little earthen mound over it he rose to his feet with an exaggerated sigh so I bury my friend and my freedom. My desire is dead. Madame Eleonore, with my freedom, I will remain here among you women folk and keep you sad company or merry as you demand. Look, the rim of the sun is pushing over the line of the distant trees. Yeah, it is there, far away, in the land where lore may be, deserted mayhap, and a wanderer, cast out from every dwelling, that she enters. Eleanor whispered these words, more to herself than to David. They were an expression of her eternal thought. The dwarf heard them, and sought some comfort for her, but her expression forbade comfort. And in the end, he did not speak at all. The two of them stood side by side and watched the sun come up at the heavens. Presently, the castle awoke, and shortly Alex came out to the field to feed a young ears and the mother-birds in the falcon nest so Eleanor, when she had given the young girl greeting returned to her solitude in the castle finding her heart in some part relieved of its immediate burden one by one the lengthening days passed june came into the world and palpitated and glowed with glory and fire and then died during this time not a word had come from distant rennes to tell the lady of kripascal How Gerald fared! The midsummer month came in, and the young men and maidens of the castle grew gay with the heat and made Ritu's expenditure of the riches of nature. That year the whole earth seemed a tangle of flowers and rich meadow grass, with which young Demusles played havoc, while the squires and henchmen hocked and hunted the drunk dip. These days stirred Eleanor's heart once more to love of life and woke the sleeping soul of Alex to strange fits of passionate, yearning after unattainable ideals. The living earth brought fire to every soul, and the pinched melancholy of winter was dead and forgotten. On the night of the 7th of July, the castle sat unusually late at meat, for the bishop had arrived unexpectedly, and being in a merry mood, deigned to entertain the whole castle with tales and jests. Just in the middle of a story of church, militant in the war of the three gins there came a grating noise of the lowering drawbridge a faint echo of shouts from the men-at-arms in the watch-tower and the clatter of swift hoofs over the courtyard stones half a dozen henchmen ran to open the great door while Eleanor rose with difficulty to her feet her heart had suddenly come into her throat and she had turned deadly white with an expressed hope and an inarticulate fear There was a little pause. The newcomer was dismounting. Then, after what had seemed a year of waiting, Cortus walked into the hall, advanced to his liege lady, and bent the knee. Cortus gaps Eleanor faintly. Cortus thy message. Madame, he cried, I bring joyful tidings from my lord. He sends thee help, greeting and duty, and prays you to prepare the castle for a great feast for in a week time he brings home his brides from Rennes End of chapter 5 recording by Maria Abrenica